You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? I, I forget, is it nine or ten that's the absolute most you can have now, Holden? Ten. Ten, okay. And they don't usually hit that. I think they've only done it once or twice, maybe that first year. Yeah, I think just the first year. Yeah, and I always take that as a good sign. It means they didn't just cram it full with as many as they could. It has to read a certain vote threshold, uh, I think, now, that they move to instant runoff. Right. Right, and for those who don't remember, that means you rank the films on your ballot, and if a film doesn't get enough, it's removed, and then everyone moves up a, a notch, and you keep going until, you know, however many films reach the threshold, which tends to produce a pretty good range each year. Yeah, so Joker uh, has the most nominations, with 11 I guess let's start with that, because I think it's probably the most interesting film to talk about, other than maybe Parasite. Well, first of all, what did you think of uh, Joker, Mark? Uh, actually, that's what I was thinking the whole time I watched the movie. What am I thinking? <laughs> I thought that it was extremely atmospheric. It was almost all atmosphere. I thought the photography, the music, everything was ominous. Then uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance, of course. You could never tell what was going on there, either. You were trying to figure out how depressed, how upset everything is. And then you get the, the Robert De Niro stuff. Uh, we get flashbacks to King uh, Comedy. I did it anyway. I think anybody does. Yeah, the other side of the desk for Pupkin, yeah. I thought it was good, but I, I'm just sitting there going, what do I think? I mean, Phoenix's performance is obviously outstanding. And he even did the full-on Christian Bale machinist thing with his physique, which always makes me cringe. Um, I'm not sure I love the first half, but the last 30 minutes or so are just so full of style and confidence. I was kind of swept up in it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so derivative of the Ken comedy in particular. It was really, really distracting for me. But, um, you know, it's, it's fine. I didn't think it was one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. It wasn't one of the worst. It did what it set out to accomplish as a as a tone poem, and a, that it became a huge blockbuster is a little surprising to me. That it became a, such a big uh, award nominee is a little surprising to me. But you know, I don't think it's going to win much. But it, it got a lot of nominations, which is interesting. But I don't think it's going to win a whole lot. Yeah, it's definitely an attempt to sort of marry the the ascendancy of the Marvel Cinematic Universe with you know awards and and prestige films and all that, and trying to find some way to sort of sew those two together. And I think this is as close as we're going to get. But I, I agree with you it doesn't feel like a best picture let's talk about the films that do though it sounds like for horse race purposes which we always get into a little bit just pure betting odds regardless of quality seems like it's down to 1917 versus once upon a time in hollywood yeah i mean i think uh parasites uh, is a long shot but it could it could sneak in there um but yeah it seems to be pretty much down to those two yeah and i it looks like early betting uh betters have it at once upon a time in hollywood but we've seen this thing flip a lot like the last five or six years the early favorite uh, has failed to win over and over again and we're not really sure why obviously the, the the voting system we just described can lead to a lot of unpredictable results because sometimes the film everyone has second or third is actually you know in the prime position and it's hard to know what that is uh, certainly but what do you think about the idea of a Best Picture director split uh, again this year with Sam Mendes presumably being the director winner? I don't know because I think 1917 is going to win. 
You think it's going to win both? Good chance. If I was going to uh, bet on it right today, I would bet both. Yeah, I think 1917 is going to win Best Picture, and I think Mindy's has a strong chance of winning director. I'd say Tarantino or uh, Bong Joon-ho could could conceivably take director and make it a split, but I think 1917 pretty much has it wrapped up for picture. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, we can already rule out Ford versus Ferrari, Jojo Rabbit. I mean, it's incredible that Jojo Rabbit's even here on some level. Uh, Little Women, for that matter, Marriage Story. Those are all just happy to be here kind of nominees, certainly. They don't have director nominations, which uh, is extremely rare that a movie wins Best Picture with a director not even being nominated, except that it's happened twice in the last five years. <laughs> so which is more important, right? The fact that it's historically rare or the fact that it's happened a lot in recent history? Right. I mean, it's, it's only happened five times in the whole history of the Oscars, and but two of them are, are very recent. So, I mean, Ford versus Ferrari, uh, you know, is almost no chance. It's a very old-fashioned, uh, fun movie experience and, you know, n- not a chance of really winning. Jojo Rabbit is so weird. Uh, Little Women's the kind of thing that might have won 20 or 30 years ago, and uh, that kind of liter- literary adaptation doesn't seem to to carry the day anymore. And Marriage Story, besides being, uh, you know, an intimate drama, which, which can win, is also has... One problem that uh, Irishman has, uh, that they're both Netflix, and Netflix has, has yet to, to break through yet as a Best Picture winner. Yeah, as a Best Picture winner, certainly. But the fact that it has two nominees is, is, is quite a boon for them. I mean, definitely a huge success for the investments they've made. Absolutely. Went from Roma last year, which, you know, it did very well, Best Director and, and a whole bunch of words. And then and now, uh, yeah, they, they've, their brand is, is becoming undeniable. And at some point, it's gonna, there's going to be a movie where, you know, the Academy is going to have to give it to them, even though it's not a traditional studio. So if each of you had to pick a dark horse, is it Parasite for both of you? I guess Parasite. I don't know. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was my fave until 1917. Yeah, I, I don't see... I mean, it's it's great that Parasite you know, has done so well, yeah, but there's only been 12 foreign language films that have been nominated for Best Picture, uh, even in these you know year recent years with the expanded nominees, and uh, you know, and two of those were you know Eastwood's Letters from Iwo Jima and uh, uh, Inarito's Babel, which is has a whole bunch of languages. Um, so the, really, you're talking about ten really foreign films that have been up for Best Picture, and I just as it's great that Parasite's been on this run and has made at least worldwide has made you know, a good chunk of money and has gotten uh, all this attention, but it's just it's just not the kind of thing that's going to win Best Picture. Yeah, it's it's very audacious. It's a little weird. Um, I'd say there are five minute periods in this film that could alternatively pass for a serious drama, a horror film, or even a straight up comedy at times. But it is yeah. very it is very well made. Probably getting some of this momentum because it's very zeitgeisty. The the right film at the right time they like to call it that kind of thing. Certainly a good point about foreign film, which of course is not foreign film anymore. I believe right best international feature film it's called now, and uh, that category I think is a foregone conclusion. There's no drama there this year because of Parasite's inclusion here in Best Picture. Right. Certainly since uh, the the picture uh, nominees have expanded, yeah. Every time a, a one of these foreign films has been up for Best Picture, it, it wins the foreign language. Right. It reminds me of when Up was nominated for uh, Best Animated Film. You know, that one was a foregone conclusion, too. But you have to remember these awards are at least ostensibly about merit and not just about drama. The Irishman, personally, I binged this series in one day. It was a series, right? Of course, there's no way there's a film that long. Uh, I'll say this. I can't believe a three and a half hour movie didn't bore me. I mean, even really long, great films uh, tend to flag in the middle like that. But I was interested 
the entire time. And uh, whatever you think of Netflix overall, I mean, I can't imagine anyone else was going to let Marty make a three-and-a-half-hour movie for $130 million the way he wanted. So it's really something that this even exists. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I like it. Uh, I'm glad it exists. And I actually saw it in the theater because I'm a Scorsese nut, so I actually sat there. So you were the one. <laughs> no intermission, yeah. <laughs> and actually, if it were to win, it would be the fourth longest Best Picture winner. Although back in those days, their old, you know, their long movies actually had intermissions. And I sat there. There was not an intermission. I could have used one to pee, but... Um, <laughs> Well, probably most of the cast at this point, too, given how long they've been making these mob films. Right. So so Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, and Ben-Hur are all longer than The Irishman. So all of you people sitting there complaining, like, Irishman's so long. It's the longest thing. <laughs> go, go, go to a theater and watch Ben-Hur. I mean, you do get an intermission in those days. They did have on tracks and, and uh, intermissions. But, you know, it's not the longest movie ever made or anything. And it wouldn't be, even be the longest picture to, to win Best Picture. But it is long. But it is long, especially by modern standards, yeah. Back back then, I guess they watched films uphill in the snow both ways. The fact that those are all fairly old films shows you that it is a bit of a throwback then, uh, at least in that regard. And I don't think that would have been possible as a normal studio release. Oh, I thought it was solid all the way through. Uh, you know, there are little things I could pick apart, but I do that about every movie. I watched it straight through, uh, th- I think it was Thanksgiving morning once Never question anything, but you know, that's what happens when I'm a throwback too, so that's the way it goes. There we go. A throwback viewer, throwback movie, yeah. Uh, the thing that impressed me most was definitely Pesci's sort of understated performance, which could just be one of those things where he's getting credit for his career, right? He's known for playing the powder keg, so you're waiting for him to explode because you know it's Joe Pesci, but meanwhile, it never happens, and you're just on pins and needles the whole time. Yeah, I thought he was really good. It's probably it's it's my favorite Pesci performance ever. I think it's his best. He's not going to win. He's not going to win, but he's really, really strong in it. He's got some company in Best Supporting Actor. Uh, We'll just kind of hop around here. Uh, Pacino and Pesci both nominated, no De Niro. Uh, And we talk every year about vote splitting and whether that's a thing. But I don't don't think it matters uh, in this case either way, because it sounds like Brad Pitt has got this pretty much sewn up. Yep, I think so. And similarly understated, for that matter. A very kind of wry role reminded me a little of Aldo Rain in the other Tarantino film that he starred in. This sort of smirk in place of a line most of the time. Um... I, I gotta admit, I actually had the envious position of being really stupidly ignorant about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because I didn't realize going into this that he was rewriting history again, so I was kind of just expecting it to go the normal route, and I was wondering how he was going to write around that, and it turns out, no, he's completing his little uh, Revisionist's Revenge trilogy. Uh, and the title, of course, itself, in, in typical Tarantino fashion, uh, is a bit of a nod uh, to film history. The title sort of replacing uh, Duck You Sucker as part of Leone's Time Trilogy, and, and more faithful to the title format than that film's original title, too. I think that was originally, or alternatively, Once Upon a Time, The Revolution, something awkward like that. Yeah, I don't know that Leone named it that. I think that was a marketing thing, but yeah, that was one of its titles. Yeah, Fistful of Dynamite, and of course, Duck You Sucker, the worst of the three, becoming the film's real title, a nod back to those spaghetti westerns that we know uh, Tarantino loves. You know, I, I, at this point, I guess you can't worry too much about spoiling it. But yeah, I mean, I went in not knowing, you know, knowing that it was that the Manson murders played into it and not knowing or I guess not even guessing that how much Tarantino was going to change that. And so, yeah, I mean, the the ending, if you don't know that, <laughs> is really very funny and surprising and triumphant. Right, especially because everything before that point weaves around reality pretty well. It doesn't do anything too yeah. dramatic that breaks that. Right, and I, I mean, I think I think Pitt and, and uh, DiCaprio do some of their best work. I mean, Pitt is playing some kind of version of himself, or at least his persona, and he's really, really good, and uh, really, you know, commands the screen powerfully. It's his fourth nomination. He's, he's never won before. You know, he's going to win this time, and it's 
that's partially, I think, for his career, for you know, being a movie star for so long and making mostly interesting choices along the way, uh, and just the fact that he's really, really good. And you know, some of this that you know comes up just about every year as well. That it's kind of uh, category shopping. That he's he's the co-lead of that movie, but you know, for awards purposes, they put him in the, in the supporting category where he's going to run it. And if he was you know, put forward as a lead actor. Maybe he makes the cut with DiCaprio, but then, you know, he's not going to win against uh, Joaquin Phoenix. So it's a strategic thing, which uh, unfortunately there's not really a way to quantify all these things and, and, and police it. it. It just is the way it is. It's been that way forever. It'll probably always be that way forever. So he's a, he's a lead performance in the supporting category, which also helps his, his cause. Well, it's crazy that you say helps his cause and that it's strategic when you look at his competition in that category, because I mean, this is hard to quantify, too. This might be the most loaded acting category in Academy history. It's Brad Pitt, Tom Hanks, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, and Anthony Hopkins. I mean, I know yeah. we're talking about careers rather than individual performances, but I don't know if you've ever had that much acting talent and experience in box office and everything crammed into one category before. It's amazing. Yeah, and the only one of those who hasn't won an Oscar yet is Brad Pitt, which is why, on top of everything else, puts him over the edge. Yeah, I imagine something in his speech is going to have to give a little nod to the ridiculous company he's in. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Best Director. Um, I think we've sort of already covered this, but Sam Mendes, Runaway Winner? Don't know about Runaway, but yes. Just as a technical achievement. I know 1917 is not one shot, and Sam Mendes is trying his best to make us think it is without literally lying and saying it is, because that's not really a thing at a certain point. It's just just money-wise, I don't think the producers would ever let this actually happen. But there are prolonged shots. The shots are obscured. It's certainly just a tremendous technical achievement. So even if it doesn't win Best Picture, it seems like the kind of thing where... I would say out of those two, I would say 1917, more likely to take director than picture, even if it takes both. The production design is pretty mind-boggling. There are so many sets of so many different levels, and so so many things happen in these non-one-shots. Uh, you just got to see it to understand that there's so many, many movies. There's like 20, many, many movies in the thing, and, <laughs> and almost everyone is spectacular. And the production design, I don't know how they came up with some of these things. I really like that, the description of 20 little movies in one. That, that's just very interesting. Moving on quickly to uh, Todd Phillips' Joker. Uh, no chance, it sounds like. But I do want to briefly remark on the career this guy has had now. Road Trip, Old School, Starsky and Hutch, The Hangover movies, and now Joker and nominated for Best Director. It actually kind of makes me think of Adam McKay, you know, going from the Anchormans of the world to, you know, the big short uh, and Vice and things like that. It's a similar kind of trajectory from those silly, gross-out frat boy comedies to real awards fair. So even if he has no chance of winning, this is a big career step for him. Yeah, and he had kind of one intermediary step in the middle there with uh, War Dogs, which was kind of loosely based on a, on a you know true story. It was a dark comedy, but kind of you know started to play with some political things and that that you know weren't the the kind of comedies he had been doing. Uh, but yeah, Joker's is definitely a, a different step. Yeah, and Marty, obviously nice to see Marty here, but he got his Lifetime Achievement Award in the form of The Departed, I guess. And- yeah, he's he's now the I mean, definitely the, the living director with the most nominations, but he's second most ever to William Wyler. William Wyler had 12 over his career, and, and Scorsese now has nine. Jeez, jeez, that's absurd. And one Absolute win. Absurd. And one win for The Departed. That's, uh, that's going to look silly forever, I assume. Yeah, I think so, but you know, what can you do? 
Yeah. So best actor, Joaquin Phoenix. Sounds like we all agree there. Jonathan Price, fun little, uh, fun little nomination there. Um, and Adam Driver, who is. I felt like this was a long time coming. I'm not surprised at all. I haven't seen Marriage Story yet. I'm. I'm not even looking forward to it. It looks heart wrenching. <laughs> yeah. No. He's he's very good. He's been you know on the rise obviously for the last few years and got his first uh, nomination in, in supporting category last year for Black Klansman. So, yeah. I mean, he's he's definitely arrived now, and I expect to see him. You know, certainly among the contenders every year now if not you know actually making getting nominations and you know with that kind of math and the kind of filmmakers he works with has worked with already you got to figure at some point in the next you know three or four ten years he's going to win one or two oscars yeah he has the feel of perpetual nominee for the yeah. next 10 20 years i think yeah um his co-star scarlett johansson has two nominations in both actress categories including of course best actress she's alongside renee zellweger uh saoirse ronan did i get that right i think so saoirse yes uh charlize theron and cynthia erivo i think it is and it sounds like zellweger runaway winner here although i think you mentioned judy one of the rare one of the few nominees you haven't seen this year yet yeah i don't think anyone's seen it probably about 90 percent of the academy included but it's just one of those it's kind of like the fred mercury last year although you know, I think that was a more having not seen it, but just you know, from from looking at the two trailers and the and the kind of scope they're going for, at least a more ambitious movie, even if it didn't totally work for me. But um, you know, this one is just you know, it's one of those biopics. It's you know, the last year of Judy's life, pretty much. You know, Judy never won an Oscar. She was nominated a couple times and died. You know, relatively young. Everybody knows, and you know, Renee probably won an Oscar for playing her. It's the next best thing, I guess. It's still a, a form of honor. I guess yeah. so. I admire that they did the the uh, the end of her life rather than just do the whole boring, you know, biopic routine where we have to watch the rise and the fall and all that, which, as uh, as Walk Hard showed us, is becoming a little formulaic. Uh, Mark, do you have a favorite in this category? Between Zellweger and uh, Scarlett Johansson, I guess. Oh wow! I mean, Marriage Story is once again a, a kind of movie. Uh, not not considering the production design, but it's like like almost like twenty different uh, movies, but all from a, a writer's and actor's perspective. There are there are like there's one long segment in Marriage Story where like you get the greatest hits of the worst things you could possibly say to anybody. Yeah, I haven't seen uh, Baumbach say it specifically, but I'm sure he was thinking very much of the uh, the argument scene in Carnal Knowledge between Jack Nicholson and Anne Margaret. That's just so raw and I think took them like a week to film back in the day and just their voices were raw at the end and it's very you know I, I don't think it quite reaches that level that's pretty perfect scene but it's very close and it's very good um, don't think I mean this Scarlet's never been nominated now she's nominated you know twice in the same year which is which happens it's happened a handful of times it hasn't happened in a while but it, it does happen that someone will get nominated twice in the same year for different movies but uh, she's very good I think she's you know even though she's about to star as Black Widow next month I think she's kind of you know I, I, she's she's reaffirmed that she can do uh, a lot more than that, and hopefully filmmakers are, uh, will take note of this. And and in the next few years, you'll see her in more interesting, uh, diverse kind of roles. So just briefly, going to say Cynthia Erivo was good as Harriet Tubman, but one thing that kind of bothered me a little was uh, I always expect her to come out in a superhero uniform <laughs> because she almost, near the end, she almost seems like she's a superhero. Tubman. Tubman is the next Marvel superhero. Yeah, there you go. And a great story. I mean, that, I, you'd have to really be inept 
not to tell a compelling story about Harriet Tubman's life. Scarlett Hansen's other nomination, of course, is for Best Supporting Actress. That is for Jojo Rabbit. I have not seen this. I am very much looking forward to it. Uh, I'm going to artfully ask one of you to try to pronounce the director's name for me so that I don't have to. You mean Taika Waititi? Thank you. Yes, you took the bullet. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I don't. I can't say his name, but I'm a big fan. I've been a fan of his since way back in the Flight of the Concords days. And similarly, a kind of path from comedies and then some intermediate steps uh, with dramas like Hunt of the Wilder People, which is half drama, half comedy, and a lovely little production. And then Thor Ragnarok, arguably the most creative and inventive of all the Marvel films. And now here he is with an actual Best Picture nominee, but not one that sacrifices his weirdness at all, from the looks of things. Not at all. No, it's definitely one of his movies, for sure. If you liked Hunt for the Wilder People and his other movies, it's got that same tone. The the subject matter's taken up a notch, uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's very funny, and it's also, you know, very touching, and, uh, and really tries very hard to make some real satirical points, whether it makes those satirical points or, or not, you know... It's kind of up to each audience member, but as a, I think as a comedy and as with tinge with some really touching uh, moments, uh, it's it's incredibly entertaining. Yeah, that balancing act between sweet and silly is something that he seems to do uh, just really, really well. Yeah, and, and I've, I became a fan of his even before Flight of the Concords. He made a, a short film that made the kind of uh, film festival circuit two cars one night, I think. A little short film, it's like 10 minutes long maybe, but it's his exact same sense of humor, and then he had Boy, and then he did the Flight of the Concords, and then, and then the rest since then that uh, more people have heard of. But yeah, he's just, he's really, uh, really interesting filmmaker, and, and with Thor, he kind of proved he can take his his style and his and insert it into just about anything. So I hope between this getting some awards attention and Thor making, you know, being a blockbuster that he gets, uh, get some real opportunities to, to have fun and make some projects inside the studio system, outside of the studio system, but with, with some money and really have a lot of fun and make, make some noise. I thought I was going to match you, but no, Holden beats me again. He's a fan even earlier than I am. Ah, of course. Uh, so, Best Sporting Actress, though, it sounds like Laura Dern, again, a huge, huge favorite here. She gets to be very natural. Uh, maybe she's slightly natural, naturally side. I don't know. Um, I mean, Kathy Bates is very good. Kathy Bates is usually very good. Uh, Florence Pugh is going to be a big star. She was also in uh, Midsummer. Midsommar this year, as well as uh, Fighting With My Family, which I saw on an airplane and was really, I kept watching it really because of her, <laughs> honestly. It was one of those movies that's, you know, pretty much a throwaway, except that she's really good in it. Uh, and there was a movie from a handful of years ago called Lady Macbeth, which is not a Shakespeare adaptation, that's just the title of it, uh, where you can really see kind of what she's capable of. So she's, you know, just exploding now, and uh, she's not going to win, but the fact that she was singled out with Sorshi from, from the Little Women cast uh, is good and she's you know she's going to be in a lot of movies and she's going to be one of those faces you should get used to because probably in the next three or four years she's probably going to be in about seven movies yeah this feel, has the feel of one of those debutante kind of nominations where you know a young actress announces herself on the scene no chance of winning but she's in really good company and then you see a lot more of her immediately afterwards yeah and her her character is usually has you know traditionally been one of the most hated characters by <laughs> by lovers of the book and watchers of the movies over the years and between uh, the direction and and her performance she really makes it a relatable character, I think, in the way that all the other versions and the novel have never made that character very sympathetic. And just her performance, and, and partially the way it's, it's directed and written, turns that character in, into something very sympathetic and understandable. 
and here you finally kind of understand why she, the choices she makes, and it's verbalized and, and and shown in a way that's never really been shown before. So I mean, it's it's a really good performance and interesting adaptation of Little Women. Well, that that makes a lot of sense because when I saw that they were doing another Little Women film, I thought, why? You know, what more could you possibly have to say about this? It seems like such a strange choice, but what you're describing now sort of answers that for me. That there are, it does have a new take on some of this material. Yeah, Greta Gerwig, uh, you know, besides adapting it non-linearly, she took it. She kind of uh, breaks it up in a way that's never been done before in a movie. Yeah, I mean, she definitely, if you liked her her kind of attitude from Lady Bird, it's not like this isn't like uh, Marie Antoinette from uh, Coppola. It's not. You know, quite that stylized, but it's definitely got more of a modern modern sensibility and specifically Greta Gerwig's sensibility uh, meshed into this you know classic story that everybody knows from middle school. Yep, and she did get a nomination for best adapted screenplay, um, and. That's pretty much it. Was not nominated for Best Director. That's on some people, near the top of some people's snub list, as a matter of fact. But nominated for Screenplay. Well, let's go through those nominees real quick. Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Greta Gerwig and Little Women, uh, The Irishman, and The Two Popes, which has a few well-placed nominations here and there. From what I understand, The Irishman, probably the favorite here. I don't really have a feel for how this one's going to go. I don't think this one's a slam dunk uh, for any of them. I would guess it's probably between Gerwig for Little Women and maybe Zalian for Irishman. This is uh, Steve Zalian's uh, fifth Oscar nomination. He won uh, one years ago for Schindler's List. I don't see uh, Watiti getting, uh, while it's great he got you know a nomination here, I don't think he's going to break through with a, a win his first time out. I'd love to see, besides the fact that it would be probably the most entertaining acceptance speech of the night if he won. Uh, it would, I, just, I just love him and love his movies. I just love to see him win. But it's, I, I would think Greta Gerwig did not win for uh, Lady Bird uh, a couple years ago when she was up for that. This is her second nomination. So I think partially for remedying that, partially for you know a kind of a fresh take on an, a well-worn property, and the fact that there's not kind of uh, a runaway uh, favorite here, I think she's got a, a good chance of getting up there. And the director snub might give her a little boost, too, if people are looking to reward her here instead, maybe. Yeah. Yep, yep. So for Best Original Screenplay, we have 1917, Knives Out, ooh, fun, uh, Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. Uh, we, we joke about this every year. There's always one fun film in Original Screenplay that doesn't get really any other nominations. Uh, there's just some, like, really vervy, uh, confident piece of writing, and I feel like that's Knives Out this year. That seems like the one. I don't know why I didn't get other nominations. I, it could have been the 10th nominee for film, certainly. Hmm. Uh, Ryan Johnson, of course, this is his rebound, so to speak, from The Last Jedi uh, and all the fan backlash from that. Uh, And it seems to have been a pretty triumphant one. Yeah, I think so. But it sounds like Tarantino probably the likely winner here. What do you think, Holden? Uh, I don't know. He's won two other original screenplays before for Pulp Fiction and uh, Django. Yeah, I still can't believe Django was his other win, because uh, I, I feel it's one of his weaker screenplays compared to the, all the other ones that could have won. Yeah, and this is only his fourth nomination, and I, yeah, I think he's probably going to miss the cut for director again. I mean, he's got a chance of, you know, he's de- it's not like he's got no chance of winning, but uh, I think he's probably not going to make it again. And I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is not going to get Best Picture that 1917 is. So I think, again, this is the way to, you know, say, good job, Quentin. Thanks for making these wonderful movies. We can't quite pull the trigger on Best Picture your best director but hey how about how would you like another screenplay award yeah and maybe if they give him another screenplay award and not best picture director maybe he'll he won't stop at 10 maybe he'll keep going until he gets the one he wants yeah yeah no i was definitely impressed by the production design there too i definitely i felt i such a movie poster thing to say but i, I felt transported to the time and the place i really did yeah well it's, it's the time and the place that i live in so yeah 
Yeah, well, you would know. I'll, I guess I should just ask you, Mark. Uh, did they nail it? Yes. <laughs> okay, I'll uh, take your word for it. Pretty much nailed all, all the uh, radio references, too. Since, you know, KHJ and KFWB and all that stuff. Uh, Tarantino claims he, he just goes to his room and is, uh, gets out his records and starts playing them to figure out how to write a script. Yeah, and the authenticity, I think, is what what makes the ending so fun that you know and that you even though he's he obviously i mean you know Django and uh Inglorious Bastards obviously rewrote history but they were such movie movies you know they were such you know take off on the spaghetti western and kind of that that kind of uh action movie and uh Inglorious Bastards that the fact that you know he kills Hitler at the end of that movie it, it's not so surprising because it's so stylized and so over the top and and you know it's not out of the realm whereas once upon a time in Hollywood you know goes to such pains to get you know every single detail from the cups of coffee on to you know how the street looked absolutely perfectly right and then at the end does this big switcheroo with history yeah, and they even go to lengths of like having DiCaprio uh, talk about how he almost got Steve McQueen's role in The Great Escape, and they kind of splice that together in a clever like Forrest Gump esque way, and it's very funny yep. and very interesting. But they, but they, you're right, they bend over backwards to make it fit into history, like we were talking about earlier, which kind of maybe lulls you into a false sense of security before he des- completely destroys the historical narrative uh, in the last thirty minutes or so. Yeah, it caught me totally by surprise. Yeah, not only a false sense of security, but uh, uh, the building dread of mm. uh, you know knowing yeah. this is. Tarantino and knowing how graphic he can be and knowing how graphic the end of of, of his movie actually is uh, that he made, you know, wondering like, oh my God, are we going to have to see uh, Sharon Tate? Like, how how far is he going to go with this? And then when you're you're dreading that if you know any of that, you know what the, what the Manson murders are. You're kind of dreading that the entire time, and it gets there and. Uh, there goes the dog, and, and history changes, and it's it's just it's it's a really neat trick that there's all that built up dread and anticipation of what's coming, and then it's it's turned on its head in a dime. I think the the actor who has the small part of uh, Steve McQueen at the party did a, a really nice job of, of playing Steve McQueen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call. There was a lot of that. Bruce Lee, of course, too. Uh, tremendous. And in case anyone's wondering, and I grew up watching Bruce Lee. My dad was a big fan uh, when he was younger. I want you to know that if you haven't seen old Bruce Lee films, that's not a caricature. He was like that. That was yes. pretty true to form. Yes. And I think that's that's one of the other kind of few pieces that that Tarantino doesn't that takes a little liberties with is making, you know, Cliff Booth, this badass stuntman who maybe killed his wife, uh, be able to go toe to toe with Bruce Lee and the, you know, there are lots of Bruce Lee fans and his family apparently are very upset about this and oh, he wasn't a jerk like that and he wouldn't have fought like all this stuff and but I mean obviously in the in the terms of uh, the script, it's perfect cuz when even high Cliff Booth can completely destroy these man's nights uh without much much effort you see it's set up because he could go toe-to-toe with bruce lee so the fact that they've established that even if it's probably not quite period correct one of the few details leading up to the the manson night that's not quite correct it perfectly establishes what cliff booth is capable of for some of the other categories here best animated film uh klaus actually is kind of the surprise here isn't it it's a netflix film i had never even heard of it until it was already released and then these little reviews trickled in and people just said this is actually kind of good like a total surprise out of left field. Klaus, yes. People who see it are going to be very happy, I would think. You know, besides being funny and very original, even though it seems like, well, no, it's not original. It's just another, another Santa Claus movie. By the time they get to the end, they're going to be completely moved beyond belief. Yeah, I mean, it looks so much like those just 
churned out manufactured Netflix animated kids films, right? There's hundreds of them. There's so many of those posters popping up on my recommendations every time I watch one Pixar film and they just look so disposable and so pointless and just like generic, you know, put the kids in front of it and they zone out kind of stuff. So it'd be very easy for something good to get lost in the shuffle, but I'm I'm really glad that this hasn't uh, because it sounds like sometimes those are actually worth your time. I Lost My Body is also very, very good. So uh, that's from Netflix. Yeah, and my my niece and nephew, uh, my I've got two nieces and a nephew. My my younger niece is only six, but my older niece and nephew, who I used to go to a lot of these movies with, have kind of aged out of it. So I don't see them anymore. <laughs> I don't have <laughs> yeah. a reason to go anymore. So I, I haven't seeked out a lot of these yet. I saw Toy Story for just uh, just this week, as a matter of fact, and it was. Again, it was just fine. It didn't need to exist. It wasn't a better send-off than Toy Story 3. It had a few new things to say, a few new ideas, but uh, so often with these animated franchises, you're just going through the motions, and it's a little disappointing to see that you know, two of them still end up with nominations. They're fine and all, but I have to imagine there's some you know brilliant animated masterwork that I have never heard of that probably could have gone here instead, although I am encouraged that it looks like, you know, we're only down to two now, as opposed to DreamWorks getting a requisite one or two again. And, you know, Frozen 2, which was a giant hit, did not make the cut. Good point. Good point. Yeah, see, I feel like five or six years ago it would have just because, and that the category has maybe improved and evolved a little bit. We already mentioned Best International Feature Film. You're not crazy. That is a new category title. It's not foreign language anymore, which gives them a little more uh, latitude with, you know, English-speaking uh, countries, Parasite, foregone conclusion there. We haven't mentioned uh, Antonio Banderas. It's ostensibly uh, Almodovar's autobiography. With, and... Banderas, with Banderas playing, standing in for him. Oh, if only we could all have someone like Antonio Banderas uh, play us in our life story. Banderas is quite incredible. Yeah, he's uh, very good. Yeah, yeah. His, his his nomination, even though he won the the Best Actor award at, at Cannes back in May, uh, was a little bit of a surprise because you know he had you know it's you know a lot of foreign films just don't don't make the cut for for the acting awards, and it had been so long ago that that kind of came out and he got the attention at, at Cannes. Uh, but no, he's he's excellent. It's it's really a capper for you know he he started his career with Almodovar back in the early '80s, so I think they've made eight or nine movies together. Uh, you know, so it, it's a great career capper for them. You know, he's not going to win obviously. But it's it's a it's a great it's a great nomination. Uh, Almodovar, if you've only you know, he's been such a international superstar for the last twenty years, uh, especially. Uh, but if you've only seen one of his movies or one or two and have never you know gone back and he, he's made some really 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 good movies, uh, especially. Uh, I mean, I like his I like his later stuff more than his 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 his. Early stuff is very, very raw and very, uh, you know, but I, I really like the the more polished stuff from kind of All About Your Mother on. It's just really, really consistently just amazing movies every time out. And this one is uh, all that jazz. It's it's <laughs> him looking at his life uh, as, as an artist. A cinematic memoir. It just has the misfortune of uh, coming out the same year as Parasite, I guess. Otherwise, sounds like it might be a shoo-in. Mark, would you like to do the honors of being the person to remind me this year of the difference between sound editing and sound mixing. Again? <laughs> Every year. Listen, I, I, I feel like I retain this for something like 360 days a year. And then right around the time the nominations come out, I go, what was it again? One of them is about the actual production of the sounds, and the other is about, oh, I don't remember. Please, please humor me. Well, best sound mixing used to be called best sound. Yes. And it just generally meant whatever you hear. What you hear when you watch the movie. Well, sound editing is for... Editing used to be called sound effects editing, 
which would be like bringing in the gunshots and the, the fast cars and the, all that. Now that I probably confused you more than you even <laughs> <laughs> I think I sort of get it. So best sound editing is like Foley work, right? Like sound effects, what we think of when we think of the phrase sound effects. Sound mixing, it sounds like it almost encompasses sound editing. It's more of a holistic thing. I would say that's the more holistic of the two, yes. Yeah, and, and I remember there have been years where these uh, nominees were identical across both categories and were the same film won, but that doesn't happen as much lately. In this case, four of the five nominees are the same. 1917, Ford versus Ferrari, Joker, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The difference is Best Sound Editing has Star Wars, and Best Sound mis- Mixing has Ad Astra. But it sounds like Ford versus Ferrari is probably the favorite in both, and I haven't seen it yet, but I can certainly imagine why. I don't suppose any of you have super strong feelings about the sound qualities this year, do you? <laughs> Uh, no, but I would say that uh, 1917, this is also one of those categories that if people start, you know, marking their ballot, you know, from top down and go best picture for 1917, best director for 1917, uh, that they it, these could both easily go to 1917. Yeah, I always love it, by the way, when the Oscar poll we do every year comes down to something like sound mixing, and that's the one that gets somebody. Uh, it almost doesn't feel fair, because for some people it's just a total afterthought. But that's a good point. If 1917 just wins people over, it could just sweep a lot of these little technical awards. Um, 1917, not in editing. Okay, so again, I haven't seen it yet. You're both going to have to forgive my ignorance. Is that weird? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if uh, I think the the long shots tells you why it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not one long shot, but it's several long shots uh, melded together to look like one shot. But they, in that sense, those, those parts where those long takes are melded together is the only editing per se in the film. The editing is done in the camera. It's, it's, it's designed in the shot, not uh, by the, it's not someone in the editing uh, booth putting takes together in different camera angles. It's, it's just one camera angle the entire time. That's a good way to put it. And the Academy does seem to recognize this distinction because it is nominated for Best Cinematography and is apparently the favorite there, too. Do either of you have a favorite choice for cinematography? I do want to specifically highlight The Lighthouse here, too, uh, which was black and white and uh, f- shot in 4 by 3 uh, as well, which is a pretty audacious thing to do with a modern film. Cinematography, first of all, is tremendous. It's right in your face. You see what's going on. It hits you on a visceral level. And the acting is right in your face. But... You're not sure what what they're acting about, but the, the cinematography helps you to understand. There are also parts during the scene where you seems like you're almost, uh, the cinematography is almost blurred out, which see, which make it blend in again with what's going on in the movie because it seems like you're in a blur watching the whole movie, and it seems like the characters in a blur. That's a movie that probably should have gotten editing, I think. Yeah, and how about acting, Willem Dafoe? Sure. I mean, I thought he was tremendous. I mean, but Robert Pattinson, pretty good, too, by the way. Not not a bad actor. Don't let the uh, the Twilight sparkly vampire stuff fool you. You know, he's got some chops. But, but Willem Dafoe is, just completely steals that whole movie. I mean, I can't think of anyone more suited to play an old fisherman <laughs> than Willem Dafoe, uh, if you'd asked me beforehand, and um, and he certainly delivers. I think for the, the technical achievement, giving it the edge, I think, yeah, the, probably uh, 1917. Yeah, 1917 is going to win, and and it's going to be one of those weird things where Roger Deakins went uh, 0 for thir- 0 for his first 13, and he's going to win his next two. You know, he, he finally won for Blade Runner 2049 uh, a couple years ago, and he's going to finally he's gonna, now he's going to have two Oscars and two tries a- after going 0 for 13. Yeah, um, I mean everyone loves Deakins. I think at this point, uh, the 0 for 13 sort of got him some more attention maybe than it was just a weird anomaly it was just one of those weird things the cinematography i, I like best this year probably that didn't get a nomination was for terrence malick's uh, the hidden life uh, jorg widmer German. yeah 
he's really, really good. I think if he had been more of a name and if, if Malik's film had gotten, you know, any kind of attention, it, it could have easily slipped in here. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's, it's Deacon's best work. I think, you know, some of the things he, he didn't win for <laughs> in years past are even more impressive than 1917 in some ways, but it's for, for the, the trick of it, uh, it just puts it over the edge. It's, I mean, it's, it's an amazing movie to watch. It's a fun, really fun cinematic experience. If you get a chance, definitely see it in the theater. The whole snub culture thing where people write their angry editorials, that part's a little silly. But for purposes of saying, hey, maybe this thing was overlooked, maybe if you're going out of your way to watch a lot of the nominees now that they're out, you know, you're using them as a guide to the the year in film, you know, what would someone be missing maybe that you think needs a little more attention, if anything? Pass. All right, fair enough. <laughs> uh, and your your film of the year, Mark, is, is 1917 then? At this point, yes. But then, again, that was the last, not, not the last movie. I've seen a lot since I saw it. I just saw it. A few days, about three days ago, <laughs> I've seen what, 20 movies since, but anyhow. I really appreciate you, by the way, recording this instead of watching another movie, which is what I assume you would have done with the time, uh, given the frequency. Yes, well, but... I've, I, I've got Pats of Blue on in the background, <laughs> Martin <laughs> Luther King Day, but anyhow. He's watching a movie while recording the Oscar podcast. That is very on brand, uh, but, but 1917 is the best film you saw. I think. Okay, what about you, Holden? Uh, any, anything that people that wasn't nominated that you really think should have been, and what was your favorite film of the whole year? Oh, boy. Uh, I know, big questions. I'm sorry. I liked, I liked uh, High Flying Bird, the, the Soderbergh movie about the business of basketball, I think is a really good one. Uh, that one's on Netflix. You can, you can see that's, that's a really well-made, interesting movie that maybe in a different year would have gotten a little more attention. Uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, I like that one a lot. That's a, kind of a little indie that didn't get much attention. But and you know something like Dolomite is my name is really fun. I can see why it didn't make the the Oscar cut, but you know it's there on Netflix. Everyone can watch it. But yeah, I mean, I, and Pain and Glory is and Pain and Glory and and the Hidden Life, uh, the Malik movie and the Almodovar movie are probably the two I would say uh, that didn't get enough attention. And that if if you're I mean if you're a fan of international cinema, you're already watching them anyway. But if you're looking for a really good movie, I look at the Hidden Life. It's it's really it's a really well-made film and really uh, compelling. It's one of those years that didn't really have one movie that really stuck out for me. I mean, Once Upon a Time in the Hollywood and The Irishman and Jojo Rabbit and Marriage Story, they were all, they were all really top-quality movies for me. Uh, Parasite's really good. You know, the, I, didn't, uh, I don't really have complaints about what made the cut this year. Yeah, normally you have a, a quite a list uh, of, of of things that you think should have made it, but you think the awards did a pretty good job this year. Yeah, and I'm I'm mellowing in my old age. I don't care <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Wild them in the end, you got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wild them in the end, and you've got a hit. <laughs>